Welcome to the Lovable Podcast. I'm Kelly Flanagan, clinical psychologist and author of Lovable, embracing what is truest about you so you can truly embrace your life. In this podcast, I'm walking with you each week for one year through Lovable's companion book, the year of listening, loving, and living. This companion book is currently available nowhere else, so I hope you'll join us on this journey as together we recognize, reveal, and resurrect your truest, worthiest, most lovable self. Can't shake these lies, they keep running around in my head. But what if I saw me the way that you see me? What if I believed it was true? What if I traded this shame and self hatred for a chance at believing? Welcome to episode 51 of the Lovable Podcast. Successful people aren't better at being successful. They're actually better at failing. They don't misinterpret failures as a sign that they should be doing something else. They don't listen to the people who tell them their failures define them. They get back up and try again, believing their passion is truer than their setbacks. In other words, success doesn't always feel great. More often than not, it feels like failure that didn't stop us. This week, we'll be turning your definitions of success and courage upside down and cultivating the courage to fail by listening to the right people. Before we get into this week's conversation, though, a couple of quick notes. Remember, the comprehensive, lovable study experience is available now. Everything we've been working through in this podcast, all of the written content that goes along with the year of listening, loving, and living, as well as an individual and group study guide for lovable, it's available for free on my website. You can go there right now to get it at drkellyflanagan.com backslash experience. That's drkellyflanagan.com backslash experience. And when you get there, you'll also find all the instructions for ordering copies of Lovable for yourself or your small group or your organization. By the way, while you're at my website, you can sign up for my mailing list at the top of the right sidebar. You'll immediately get a free ebook entitled The Marriage Manifesto, Turning Your World Upside Down. You'll also get a free sample of Lovable, and then each week you'll get an email on Wednesday mornings with links to helpful content when you sign up for my my email list. All right, let's get into this week's conversation. When you fall down, will you listen to the voices telling you to stay down, or will you get back up again and keep going? Thanks for tuning in. Hello, Facebook Live. Welcome to week 50 of the year of listening, loving, and living, which is entitled The Courage to Fail. Last week, we talked about how the voice of fear can lie to us, stopping us from doing the things in life that are best for us. We talked about listening to a different voice instead and following your passions, even though it might be scary. This week, we're going to talk about what to do when you follow your passions anyway, your fear is telling the truth, you fail, and the voices around you become critical of you, shaming you and trying to convince you to stop. We're going to talk about the courage to fail, the determination to try again, and the wisdom to listen to the right people. Before we get into this week's discussion, though, let's check in. As always, I'd love to hear, what successes are you having in practicing your passions? Or where do you feel stuck? What insights do you have to share with all of us at this point? Or what questions do you have to ask? And even more specifically, what have you noticed about the influence of your fear upon the practicing of your passions and the living of your life? How do you respond to it such that it isn't making the decisions for you? 
And while you're thinking about what you want to share, I will share with you an example I thought of how this concept of not listening to our fear and tuning into like a different voice within us, how it played out um, in a textbook way in our home this past weekend. So um, I go to my, I go to breakfast on Sunday morning, uh, do this once a month with one kid. It's Caitlin's month. She's nine years old. Um, Go out to breakfast with her Sunday morning and sort of out of nowhere, she says, uh, dad, what do you hate about being a boy? And I said, well, sweetie, I'm, I don't know. Why do you ask? She goes, I hate some things about being a girl. And I said, what, like what? She goes, that I have to have the babies. Um, and knowing Caitlin, I know what she's saying is she, she is so brave and resilient in so many ways emotionally. Um, but physical pain is just, you know, it's her kryptonite. Um, you know, she gets a cut, she gets a scrape and it's the end of the world. And so the idea of having a baby for her is terrifying. So, so we, we have a conversation about that. We wrap it up. We go to church then to meet the rest of the family at church. And literally as we're walking in the door, the big heavy church door slams on her toe and kind of pulls the skin back from her, her big toe and it's bleeding. And it is, uh, to her credit, she handled it really well. I think because she was in public, she sort of kept herself together. But all day long, my wife and I are asking her if we can dress her toe and she's resisting it. It's finally Sunday night and we're like, sweetie, you, you know, you, you've got to let us uh, clean that, um, put some antibacterial on it and bandage it up so that you can go to school tomorrow. You can't walk around with a bare, bare foot with a scabby infected uh, wound all day. And, uh, and her fear is telling her no. Her fear is telling her no, I, that, that would be too painful. I don't want to do that. I don't want to go through that. And it's preventing her from, from, from getting the sort of healing and the sort of treatment that she needs. Ultimately, ultimately she, she gave in, she let us treat it, um, and we paid attention to how the experience was very different from what her fear had told her it would be. And then this morning, she comes into our bathroom um, and with a big smile on her face says, I'm ready for my Band-Aid today, right? So, so the experience, that, that, that fear, once, once it wasn't given permission to take charge of her life, once she acted differently than what her fear was telling her to do, she began to learn that her fear wasn't telling the truth, that actually the Band-Aid was a good thing, um, that she needed the treatment. And so just to me, a good example of how when we begin to, to attend to our fear and understand the ways that it's lying to us, telling us that doing certain things in our life will be bad for us when actually it'll be very good, um, we begin to learn that it's not telling us the truth over time. Um, so I get to watch that in my daughter this week. and. Uh, Perhaps a long way to get back at that concept, but curious to hear from you um, as you're practicing your passions. Um, are there fears that you're noticing? Um, what what does your fear tell you that you should or should not do? Are there ways that you're sort of learning to listen to better voices within you and overcome that fear, or any other things that are going on for you right now as you are are moving toward this practicing of your passions? Mike writes, I'm still between jobs right now. Not strictly a passion, however, it does facilitate those things, and I enjoy it. The last job that I was laid off from was aspirational risky, so I'm thinking about what should I do next. You know, a couple of really important things in there, Mike, that we're always we always need to be reminded of. Number one, a job is not necessarily a passion, but they certainly can overlap. Um, 
you know, I think we do tend to think of, well, if I, if I have a passion, I have to monetize it. It has to become the thing that I do with my days. Um, but I'd say that the, the vast majority of us, our jobs are, are not a perfect correlation with our passion. Um, but what we do want to seek to do is try to, to live out our passion in the context of whatever job we're in. And of course, to be looking for ways to, to shape our careers in a way that, that more and more reflect our passion. So appreciate that distinction that they're not the same thing. We need to be reminded of that because I think a lot of people think they're failing if their job isn't their main passion. And that's just, it's just not the case. It's not realistic. Um, and I also appreciate what you say that you, you, you took the risk, you, you aspired to something, right? And, uh, and then it, it, uh, you were eventually laid off. And that is exactly in the heart of what we want to talk about today is you went after something. Um, it probably didn't go the way that you wanted to. I'm guessing you didn't start off the job hoping to be laid off. Um, and what do you do next then? Do you interpret that setback as, well, I guess I just shouldn't, shouldn't pursue this, this line of thinking, this desire of mine, this passion of mine, or do you begin to look for ways to sort of get back up and continue to pursue that in your next, in your next pursuit? Um, and how do you balance that with people going, well, maybe you should be doing something different. Um, other people saying, no, you should keep at that. How do you sort of incorporate all those voices and make wise decisions about what the next step is after, after a disappointment? So I think you're sort of leading off the conversation about where we'll head today with all of this. So really appreciate that. And, um, uh, gosh, I just uh, want to say I, I know the wisdom that you've brought to the blog and to our conversations here, and whoever gets you next is going to be fortunate to get all that wisdom. So um, we're pulling for you, and uh, we hope that it's a, is a, as clear of a reflection as your, of your passions as it can be. Mike writes, truth is it isn't just up to me. These passions don't happen in a vacuum. Others are involved. That's exactly it, right? Um, others are involved. Others are making decisions. Um, others become doorways to practicing our passions. They become roadblocks or <laughs> locked doors to practicing our passions. Um, we have other commitments, other obligations. We have people we belong to um, who uh, are, you know, their needs matter. Um, their needs are significant. We, we aren't practicing this in a vacuum. And so I just think, Mike, you're getting at the complexity of it and the, the importance of taking the time that we're taking in these weeks to sort through how we pursue our passions, especially when they're not going the way that we had hoped that they, that they would go. Um, and uh, specifically today, we're gonna to talk about involving others in that process. So thank you for, um, again, for, for attending to the nuance of all that. Anne writes, I'm still telling myself I can't learn my passion well, and so I haven't started. Mm. Yeah, and that's, you are so not alone in that, um, that we, we want to know the conclusion of where our passion is going to end up um, before we even get started. And uh, I think what you're getting at is that the, you know, that voice of fear within us is telling us, uh, hey, I'll protect you. I'll protect you from... Um, from the failures of learning, from the hardships of, 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 you know, struggling and it not going well, from all the uncertainty of, uh, of the learning process and, and beginning to develop your passion as a skill. Um, and that fear is sort of telling us, don't get started in, until you know how all of that's going to go and that it's going to go well. Um, and so important, so important that we, instead of listening to that, that, uh, that voice of fear that we listen to the voice of passion. You know, Parker Palmer um, in uh, one of his great books calls it the voice of vocation, actually. 
And uh, he says that um, along the lines of what you were saying, Mike, that some doors, some doors close, he would say that when a door closes, when other people are sort of getting in the way of you practicing your passion, that's as much the voice of your vocation as anything. That a door closing is guiding you just as much as a door opening is. Um, and so, Anne, I think the voice of fear says, hey, all, all these doors might close, no, this might not work. And, uh, and the response to that fear is, yeah, the yeah, doors will close. I will fail. It won't go well. It will be a struggle. And I'll learn from all of it. And it'll shape the direction that I take this passion. So, yeah, I appreciate your engagement with that voice because it's absolutely necessary to get started. Anne goes on, uh, yes, you're right. That fear is a lie, and I know I can learn photography and practice it. And can make me decent. And practice can make me decent at it. Um, and one of my favorite concepts is Malcolm Gladwell's um, concept that mastery requires uh, ten thousand hours of practice. Right now, now imagine you practice photography for a couple, even a couple hours a day. You're talking five thousand days of practice. I don't know what are we getting into there. Fifteen years of practice. Um, and it's impossible to know 15 years from now of diligent practice at photography. It's impossible to know at this point what a master you'll be. But my guess is if you if you committed to it in that way with the passion you have for it, really cool things will happen. Things that are better than what you could predict. Um, so yeah, and that's, that's exactly it. 10,000 hours. Um, having the courage to start that first hour is huge. Shell writes, I haven't, I have gotten involved in theater and have found myself trying doing things that are scary and out of my comfort zone. The experience is teaching me that I do tend to avoid things if I can't be the expert. I am learning to be a rookie and loving it. Wow, Shell, I think you just summed up better <laughs> than I uh, did in several minutes. You summed it up really well. Learning to be a rookie and loving it. I mean, that really is what getting started with our passions is all about. Um, learning to be a rookie and loving the learning process. You know, it's this idea that your, your passion is so, something you're so especially fond of doing um, that, the, that the, the failing and the setbacks and the, by comparison, not being as good at it as someone else, it's all worth it um, because you're enjoying the learning and the, and the, the sinking deeper and deeper into the passion. Um, and uh, I know I've talked plenty in recent weeks, I don't need to keep talking about it, um, about that experience for me of writing, of, of getting out there with that first blog post and being a rookie and, um, and just how, that's, uh, how, how my writing skills have developed over seven years. Um, seven years, right, for you, Shell, of, of throwing yourself into this, um, this passion for theater. Imagine where you're going to be in seven years in terms of the, the skill and the enjoyment of the craft. Um, it's going to be beautiful. Keep it up. Brenda writes, I've been so afraid of everything this week that I am almost afraid to even be here this morning. Fear makes me quiet. I have to choose not to be frozen by that. Fear is a liar. Oh, so important, Brenda. Thank you. I mean, number one, thank you for being here. And, you know, you do know fear is lying to you when it tells you one of the safest places to be in the world isn't safe, right? And that's one thing we've, we've come to discover about this space is that it's just such a safe place to be. Um, and the fear is telling you that it's not. Um, so to call the fear out on the lie, both in word and in action, by actually shows it, showing up and then telling us that it was there can be so powerful. Shame is the same way, and I'm sure that fear voice today for you is connected to the shame voice. Um, telling someone about the shame voice within you um, probably goes about 50% of the way um, to diminishing that shame voice. Um, it thrives so much on just listening to it quietly and not telling anyone about it. 
Um, if we can be bold and tell people about it instantly, we get some connection in the midst of it. Um, and it turns out connection, empathy, um, vulnerability is exactly what undoes that fear and that shame. So good for you for showing up, Brenda. We're so glad you're here. Um, and thank you for adding that uh, for so many people out there who needed to be reminded to, to talk back to their shame and, and let people know about it. Shelley writes, interesting to me how just being more aware of fear this week made me more in tune with it. I listened to Christian radio and noticed the songs about not having fear kept jumping out at me. Yeah, that's so good. My favorite is a new song by Francesca Battistelli called The Breakup Song, where she breaks up with fear because it kept telling her she's not enough. I replayed it over and over real loud in my my house singing along. That's so good, Shelley. Um, What you're getting at is that we oftentimes, and, and Brenda, you too, I think, that we oftentimes, we we use the, the words fear and shame interchangeably um, to describe the same experience. Because what I would say is that what Francesca is getting at when there's this, this thing in her telling her she's not good enough is that that shame, that's a belief. Um, it produces the emotion called fear, which says, I can't put myself out there. If I try and fail, people will see that I'm really a failure, right? Um, and I love the idea, and I actually, this is a concept from the book, my book Lovable, where I have a chapter where I literally talk about breaking up um, with my shame, ending the relationship with my shame. Um, so I think as we break up with our shame, we see that fear begin to diminish. That We discover that um, it wasn't actually fear of what was going to happen that, that was, was stopping us. It was the shame belief driving that fear that says, if something bad happens, I'm a bad person. If I don't do something well, then I am not good enough. Um, and as soon as you begin to, to break up with that um, belief inside of you, all of a sudden fear loses a lot of its power. It's good stuff. Thanks, Shelley. Jeff and Kathy uh, writes, I am sick of fear. Uh, you know, that is that reaction is so fundamental to turning the corner on the way that we relate to our fear. You know, Shelley, you were talking about breaking up with fear. Um, just had a great conversation with yesterday with somebody who, who does think of, of fear as a friend that protects them. And, but then when they actually start to, to pay attention to their fear, they realize that, that fear is actually limiting them. Um, it's making them feel more anxious, more awkward. Um, life is shrinking. Opportunities aren't happening. Um, hopelessness is developing. And that you have to actually begin to dislike the fear. Um, break up with it, as Shelley said. So Jeff and Kathy, I appreciate that sentiment and it's going to be critical um, as you begin to turn the corner on whether or not you let fear guide you versus um, versus you taking charge of it. Alex writes, someone told me that all you had to do was change your direction on the compass by 1%. And the 1% doesn't seem like a large change in one day. That 1% in a year put you in a whole new trajectory. Our subconscious works tirelessly. Our subconscious works tirelessly to prove our internal dialogue to be correct. When we change that internal dialogue from fear to confidence, our subconscious goes to work again to prove that true. Thank you, Dr. Kelly, for helping us change that internal dialogue around fear and make the one degree shift. I love that. So good. You know, it, it doesn't have to be this all or nothing. Like, I okay, I just quit listening to my fear and now, now I just uh, go after um, everything that I'm passionate about. That just if you begin to a one degree change, begin to listen to your fear one percent less, right? That today the difference in your life may be indistinguishable. But as we were talking about, over ten thousand hours of that, um, over seven years of that, fifteen years of that, um, the 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 direction that it sends your life in 
is remarkably different. You will be miles apart from where you would have been if you didn't just uh, change that 1%. So important, Alex. Thank you for that that subtlety um, to this, this idea of not listening to the voice of fear. Small changes, small course corrections. Love it. Marie writes, recently I stumbled into an opportunity to participate in a ministry, but I've had to then talk back to fears that said this is a premature, bringing my passion, creating into a more exposed realm. Pondering the idea you've said in the past, how did you say it? Our passions become art when we share it. I might not have that very accurate. Also, I hear the question, why not now? Why not indeed? Why not when it feels vulnerable and when I know my dependence on God to stay centered on the beauty instead of on the performance? Well, there's two, I mean, at least two really important things in there, Marie. Thanks for being vulnerable enough to share that internal struggle you're going through with facing this this great opportunity that also feels vulnerable. Um, number one, I think the, the quote that you're getting at is a Seth Godin idea, which is that art isn't art until it's shared. Um, that you can create, but until you, you make that art available to others, that creation available to others, it doesn't become art, which is always a very helpful concept for me in terms of nudging me into the vulnerable practice of sharing art. Um, and then I think I think the, the thing that you're getting at, and, and, and it's one of the ways that shame and fear sort of try to convince us to not do something, to stay stagnant, is that when you feel less vulnerable, then you can do it. Um, and the reality is, the feeling of vulnerability never goes away. I was reading something by Stephen King. Uh, actually, I think it was at his last book signing that I went to. He's, you know, the most, the the most by any standard, the most successful uh, fiction writer of all time by commercial standards. And still, when he publishes a book, it feels vulnerable. Um, it doesn't go away. Um, and so uh, we have to sort of talk back to our fear and say, I'm not going to wait for my sense of vulnerability to go away. It's never going to go away. I'm going to do this in spite of feeling vulnerable. Um, so I appreciate that encouragement, Marie, to all of us to quit waiting and ask, why not now? Um, because there's really nothing's going to change until I change it, right? So thank you, Marie. Donna writes, good morning. Finding your fight after a setback, loss, or dismissal is not a natural thing for me, but stubbornness is. I'm just stubborn enough to look for my fight when I'm discouraged. That's what I pray for, to fight the good fight. You know, Donna, stubbornness is, um, it's really at the heart of today's, I hadn't thought of that word, but really stubbornness is at the heart of today's reading um, and the ideas that we're going to explore today about persisting um, in the pursuit of our passion, even when we're running into to, to roadblocks and hurdles. So I think that's a really good word and, um, and something that I'd like it to segue, use as a segue into this week's uh, content. So let's get into it um, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll continue this conversation from there. And before we uh, get into this week 50 from the year of listening, loving, and living, this week I want to read an excerpt from Lovable that will give this reading some context today. Um, it's actually from chapter 27 of Lovable, which is entitled, Why There Was No Crowd at the Foot of the Cross. Ironically, the part I'm going to read from the chapter, there's nothing, no mention of the cross, but it's in there in a different section within the chapter. I encourage you to check out the whole thing. Um, but, but in today's excerpt, I'm going to focus on the part not about the cross, but the part about the playground. Here it is. Quinn holds out his hand to show me his thumbnail, or lack thereof. The end of it has been ripped clean off. He says it, he hit it on the jungle gym while playing tag at recess. A day earlier, his nose had been bloodied when his face lost a battle with a kid's head on the same playground. And a week earlier, he had told me the top of his head was bruised after he flew headlong into one of the slides on the playground. I look at him incredulously and say, dude, you're taking a beating on the playground. He frowns, shakes his head, and says, yeah, I guess it's not meant for me. 
I guess it's not meant for me. This is what we do. When we start to take some hits on the playground of life, we assume we're on the wrong playground or we simply shouldn't be playing at all. We human beings tend to treat our circumstances like divining rods, using good fortune and hardship to determine if we're on the right path and in good favor with the powers or the power that be. When things are breaking bad, we interpret our misfortune and disappointment as a cosmic course correction. When things are going well, we believe our choices have received a divine stamp of approval. Either way, it's comforting to feel like we have a heavenly tour guide. Of course, sometimes we're not meant to do the thing we're trying to do. For example, when I was cut from the middle school choral ensemble, I decided singing wasn't for me. 20 years later, when my kids began asking me to either sing their lullabies, quote, like mama does, or to not sing them at all, because it was hurting their ears, I realized the wisdom of my middle school decision. And it's equally true that when we're courageously stepping through our fears and into our passions, the universe often seems to open up for us. Tumblers fall into place, doors swing wide, and warm winds fill our sails day after smooth sailing day. We seem to have fallen into lockstep with a purpose or a plan more ancient than time itself. Yet whenever we pursue a passion that is an authentic expression of our true self, we will also experience misfortune, disappointment, hardship, and pain. Because when we're pursuing our passions, our souls are out there, exposed, vulnerable. There's no way to practice a passion without leaving ourselves wide open for wounding. Like Quinn on the playground, we will get bruised, bloody, and beat up. So if you're going to step into your passion, it's probably a good idea to take a big box of band-aids into it with you. Instead, we tend to take our divining rods into it. For instance, when I was nearing the end of graduate school, I was in a church small group full of other young and ambitious students, and as the time approached for graduation, the divining rods came out. I can't find an apartment in Philly. God must not want me there. Or I didn't get the internship. Maybe God doesn't want me to be a chemist. Of course, it all boiled down to this. I'm getting banged up here on this playground, so I guess it's not meant for me. This subtle belief is a big reason so many passions aren't lived out. And then I'm going to skip a forward a couple pages to page 207 in the paperback. I decided a while back that among other things, I'm on this planet to write a book. I decided it was my passion and I decided to suffer for it if necessary. In that sense, I suppose, it is a cross I've chosen to carry. And it's tempting to think the publication of it will be the climactic moment in this particular third act of my life. But when I think about Jesus hanging on the cross, crying out in despair, and then looking down into the eyes of the three who remained, his mother, Mary Magdalene, and John, I realize my climactic moment happened months ago. After writing and trashing more than 200,000 words over the course of almost two years, I found 13,000 words that worked for a book proposal. When my agent first approached several publishing houses and they saw the volume of my blog traffic, many were eager to see the proposal. But then we sent the actual proposal, and the many quickly dispersed. It was too spiritual for some and not Christian enough for others. Some wanted only a book of letters to my kids, while others wanted a book about marriage. Most didn't think I had the credentials to write about passion and purpose. Nobody thought they could bank on it. They wanted me to write a completely different book. In that moment, I wanted to quit. Bruised head, bleeding nose, broken thumbnail, because I thought this author playground wasn't for me. I thought maybe I was supposed to be doing something else, and I wanted that something else to feel less like death and more like resurrection. But then, at the foot of the cross passion I had chosen, my faithful agent said she wouldn't let me write anything else, because she believed in it too much. I looked into the eyes of my wife, and she said the same thing, and this whole lovely cloud of witnesses around the world who read my blog every week kept letting me know they weren't going anywhere. Suddenly, the presence of those who remained mattered more than the opinion of the dwindling crowd. I got back on the playground and decided to keep playing, to keep writing. I hope you will too. I hope you'll pick up your cross passion and carry it. Not necessarily because it will lead to resurrection, but because the sacrifice alone is worth it. 
After all, sacrifice isn't the way to heaven. Sacrifice is the way of heaven. It's where your commitment to the thing you're here to do will be tested and refined, where your circles of belonging will be proven steadfast, and where, you're lear- where you will learn all over again you are worthy, whether you wind up leading a revolution or simply returning to the playground, band-aids and all, for a little more play, because it is meant for you. So that um, is the context for today's reading. Um, today's reading is all about when we try, you know, not necessarily when our fear t- tells us that we'll try and fail, but when we actually try and it doesn't go well. Um, how do we handle those moments as we try to practice our passions? Um, so let's get into this week's reading from the, the Year of Listening, Loving, and Living, which is entitled, The Courage to Fail. One night, several summers ago, as dusk descended and the shadows began to stretch across the local park district pool, my oldest son Aiden did his cycles on the high dive. Sometimes he's happy to do so quietly and anonymously. This time he wanted us to watch. Of course, what he really wanted was a little applause and we were happy to oblige. As he waited his turn in line, the little boy before him slowly climbed the rungs and timidly edged his way out to the end of the board. He stood there looking down, his knees bent and then straightened. He put his arms out and then clutched them in, hugging himself. And then he scrambled back down the ladder into the back of the line. My heart ached for the little guy. My son was up next. He jumped off and swam over to us where we were clapping like he was Greg Luganus. I asked him about the little boy ahead of him and he told me the kid was just too afraid to make his first jump off the high dive. I cringed and asked a question I already knew the answer to. I hope the other kids were kind to him. My son grimaced and shook his head slightly. No, they weren't. They called him chicken and baby. Chicken. Baby. The shaming words of kids who are fighting for their own sense of worth. Kids who have come to believe their worth exists in comparison to everyone else. Kids who believe they look better if everyone else looks bad. I watch my children do it to each other. They compete for love and belonging as if my love for them is a finite resource and only one of them can have it. I watch playground bravado. The athletes shame the nerds for their lack of physical prowess and the nerds shame the athletes for their poor scores on the spelling test. I watch as friends and foes and peers send the continuous message, you aren't good enough. I'm better than you, which makes me good enough. Kids clutching at their own self-worth by slapping at everyone else's. I'm a big kid now, and at my age, we don't call each other chicken or baby. Yet the peer competition, while subtler, is still intense. Murmurs about how this person parents and what job that person lost and who so-and-so spends time with and why Jack's beliefs are wrong and how frequently Jill posts to Facebook. Life feels a little bit like a minefield. At every step, we risk stepping on someone else's landmine of shame. At every turn, the lie waits for us on the tongues of friends and foes and strangers. You aren't good enough. And it shuts us down. We quit taking steps. We quit putting ourselves on the line because it is scary and we think fear is a sure sign we're not up to the task. And so our words stay bottled up and our hopes are suffocated and we bide our time, just trying to get through the days and weeks and months and years without getting stung too badly. On that beautiful summer evening, as we threw on towels and headed uh, home to the air conditioning, my son gave me an update. Daddy, that boy got up on the board four more times tonight, but he never jumped. Every time when he came down, the kids made fun of him. The lifeguard finally told him he would have to wait and try again tomorrow. And then my son said something else that made my heart tremble. Daddy, that boy was really brave. That boy was really brave because he had the courage to keep trying even as his friends and peers tried to shame him into not believing in himself. They tried to tease the lie right into him. You are a chicken, a coward. You aren't capable of living your hopes. You aren't capable of jumping into who you want to be. That boy was really brave because courage is ignoring the jeers and feeling the fears. 
Courage is returning to the edge of our comfort zone and choosing the place where our fear dwells because we are worthy of another chance at life, regardless of what the critics say. Many of us have spent our lives listening to the voices of our peers. We've been unwitting victims of the implicit playground and household and workplace competition for worth. I think many of us have had the lie teased right into our hearts and minds, but I also think many of us have a breathtaking amount of courage buried just beneath our shame. I think many of us are standing at the bottom of the high dive ladder and we are dying to climb it, to defy the catcalls of the other kids and to walk to the end of the board. Will we jump? Does it matter? Because the real question is, will we keep climbing? Will we keep putting ourselves in the position to jump into our hopes and dreams and everything we might be? Remember, we are defined not by the criticism we receive, but by the courage we live. And nothing is more courageous than trying again amidst the failure and the mess and the fear when everyone is telling you to quit. So that is the reading for today, and I would love to hear your reactions to it, um, to any part of it. Um, as, I, as I read it today, I'm more aware than ever that it is really important, as uh, Mike pointed out earlier in today's discussion, that it's really important to distinguish between constructive feedback um, from people we trust and shameful criticism from the peanut gallery. Um, and that this maybe more than anything else is one way that pursuing our passion starts to clarify our circles of belonging even more. That uh, we begin to get a clearer sense of whose opinion can we trust about how things are going and whose opinion do we need to, to sort of block out and continue to climb up on that high dive. So I'm um, curious to hear your thoughts about the, the reading and the concept and, uh, and uh, any other thoughts about this idea of beginning to distinguish between the voices that we listen to. Mike writes, handling failure setback. I can ask myself some rhetorical questions. Who gets everything their way? Who makes a plan and has that plan play out as envisioned? I don't know anyone. I've had a very interesting and good life and little of it was as planned. Um, boy, Mike, what a valuable um, sort of addition to the conversation. I've had a uh, I don't think I'll ever do it, but one of the, if anyone's out there listening and wants to start a podcast that I think would be super valuable, I think one of uh, what I would, and maybe it's already been done, but it would be this idea of bringing in sort of ordinary, everyday, sort of quote unquote successful people and having them talk about the path by which they, they arrived. And I know every single time, because I do this with, with folks in therapy every day, um, that people who look like they had it figured out from the beginning were making it all up as they went. Um, they had a plan. A lot of it didn't work out. When it didn't work out, they adjusted the plan. Um, and they, they found themselves arriving in a place that they never could have predicted at the beginning, oftentimes better than they could have predicted. Um, so I think, Mike, that wisdom to, to let us know that, um, you know, it's no one's plan ever worked out, even when it appears um, from the outside as if it did. Once you actually know <laughs> the behind the scenes story, it turns out everybody's failing all the time. And that's how it works. Carrie Lynn writes, ah, yes, and more yes. Quote, less like death, more like resurrection, unquote. There can be no resurrection without the death. Hanging in there, surviving leads to eventually thriving. Be stubborn. There's that word again, stubborn. I love it. Have courage. The night will end, the dawn will come, and your art, your passion in you and through you will see the light of day. And you know, I go back to, again, Seth Godin's idea that art is successful as soon as it becomes art. It's not when it achieves critical acclaim. It's not when it, you sell a million copies of something. You know, it's not when the reviews are great. It's when you've taken your cre creativity and showed it to somebody and, sh and sh given it to people 
and it's become art, it's immediately successful. But the, su the success is in that moment of making it available. Um, so all of the death, all of the death of facing our fear about that and all the death of the shame telling us that we won't be good enough and that the art's not good enough and we're too much of a rookie, that all of that is redeemed, can be redeemed in the moment of, of sharing our work and our passion with people, um, regardless of how it's received, that that's, that's a resurrection in and of itself. Um, it's our true self actually getting up and walking and living in the world, which is a beautiful thing. Thanks for the encouragement, Carrie. And it's beautifully written too, Carrie, Carrie Lynn rather. Um, it's beautifully written. And I just wanna like note that about you. You have a good way with words and I don't know where your passion is, but you've got some skill there with words. Donna writes, I never thought about my stubbornness being courage. I suppose it's like most things, all in how I look at it. Okay, I hereby claim myself brave. Yeah, Donna, that's actually something I thought when you made a comment earlier, was that you said you weren't didn't have courage, but that you were stubborn, and I don't distinguish between the two. <laughs> um, stubbornness, continuing to put one foot in front of the other and moving in the direction you wanna go, even when all sorts of forces resist that, um, I can I can't think of a better definition of courage. So I think in the the thesaurus under courage, stubbornness ought to be there if it's not. Shelley writes, I have always struggled trying to discern if I was in God's will or not. Am I where I am supposed to be? Am I doing what God desires me to be doing? I admit I used the method you mentioned, looking for the divine seal of approval. If doors opened and things fell into place, then this must be the way. I was one that fell into that trap that I was not enough when I began my practice. I kept agreeing that there were many other counselors that were so much better than I until I had one of my first family therapy sessions. A month after meeting with them, as they were transitioning out of therapy, the mother took me aside and said, if you could only see yourself through my eyes, I will gladly refer others to you for counseling. She was encouraging me and it was a turning point for me, yet I admit I was mortified. I thought she could tell I was struggling with what I know was imposter syndrome. Fast forward today. I still have days when I think I could have done things or said something better, but I am learning by being here to keep going in spite of my feelings of vulnerability. It feels good to know that I am not alone in my feelings that arise at times. Yeah, I think that, that's, the, that's the challenge of imposter syndrome, right? If we're not all collectively confessing it, like, imposter syndrome goes away immediately if we all collectively confess it. Because then it's like, oh, I'm not an imposter, I'm just a normal person. I don't feel fully arrived. Um, I'm learning as I go. I'm, a, I'm always some sort of rookie, and so is everybody else. So there aren't any imposters, there's just people who are learning. There's learners. Um, but if we're all keeping it in and we're not talking about it, then we start to feel like imposters because we think we're the only one who's experiencing that. Um, and so uh, so I appreciate you saying that today, Shelley, um, and giving me the chance to say, <laughs> like, we all feel like imposters. We're all learning as we go, um, and uh, and we don't need to to feel like we're the only one in that. And I think the other thing that I would say, uh, Shelley, is that your story reminds me of one of my favorite. This was a turning point story for me. I I'd, I think I'd written three blog posts at this point in 2012 when I went to a small retreat with Donald Miller, and he was telling me about a turning point moment in his life uh, when he said uh, he was praying to God and he was saying, God, what do you want me to do? And his whole life he'd been praying that, and he'd never heard God reply. And then this day God replied, and the reply was this, I don't know, Don, what do you want to do? <laughs> and he said, uh, well, I got your attention, let me ask again, what do you want me to do? And God's reply again was, I don't know, Don, what do you want to do? Um, and it's, it's, this, is the, this is at the heart of the good news, which is that, um, that the desires that, <laughs> that are God's will for us were put into us. 
So I think we often think of the God's will is like, um, is somehow resisting my own will and doing, being obedient and doing what he does. When in fact, once we've gotten connected with our true self and discovered the self that was made for us, um, doing what we want and what God wants are actually in lockstep. And then whether or not that's going well, it's not a barometer of whether or not we're doing the right thing. Um, even when we are doing what we are here to do, it's not going to go well. Um, life happens. The world's a, not an easy place, and uh, and we continue to do it anyways because we we trust that we are we're doing what we're here to do. So thanks for that. I really appreciate the the vulnerability again. And Shelley responds, yes, I arrived at a destination I would never have expected. I am working with children and young adults with autism. It came after I had just created a community for women affected by emotional abuse. I was asked to create social skill groups for those in my community with autism after my oldest son was diagnosed with autism in May of this year. I was a bit resistant to that idea. I had spent so much time working with the women. How could I do both? While I still have the women's group, I am in a place discerning the direction it will take. Isn't that amazing, Shelley, that all of the work that you put into your career, into your passion, into your skills, um, it it's all being used for a different purpose than you had originally expected. Um, and I know I've shared in plenty of places that that's the same for me, it's the same for my wife, it's the same for so many people I work with. Like we take the next step towards our passion and all of a sudden, you know, it goes this way. And it ends up being, it ends up taking us into a place we could have never predicted and we're so glad it did. So um, good for you for being continually faithful to that passion, even though it's been scary and letting it lead you where it wants to lead you. Deb writes, oftentimes when I let go and let God in a situation, particularly with fear, I find that my trying to control things limits me. When I let go, I get better results than I ever imagined. It's just getting to that place. Not easy sometimes. Absolutely. Releasing control of it saying I'm going to keep doing this thing even if I can't make sure and guarantee that it's going to go exactly the way that I want to. Um, kind of being responsive to the results um, rather than fearing the results. Um, such an important emotional place to get into um, as we're practicing our passions. All right, so let's uh, let's keep this conversation going um, by just with a brief interlude here to read this week's practice, um, which is all about choosing the right critics to listen to and what to do with the wrong ones. So it's the week 50 practice. Last week, we focused on how our fears may be lying to us, warning us of future risks, trying to convince us that we cannot handle the discomfort and the pain. Sometimes, as we trust the voice of grace, draw upon the encouragement of our people, and pursue our passions, the risks we feared become a reality. And sometimes, that painful reality comes to us in the form of people. You see, at some level, most people feel like they're in competition for a finite amount of love, respect, and success. It is the storyline of life. So when someone exits that competition, quits playing the same old games, climbs the ladder of their passion, walks out on the board, and struggles to do what they want to do rather than what everyone thinks they should do, people can get pretty critical. There will be naysayers. During this year of becoming, we have done a lot of talking back to the voice of shame, the voices from our past, and the voices all around us. But this week, our practice is to say nothing at all. Defending oneself and justifying oneself are just distractions from the climb and the jump. Our practice this week will be to mimic a brave little boy who didn't say a word in response to all the words being said to him, but instead just kept climbing back up. Who is most likely to be a naysayer in your life as you struggle with living out your passion? Pick just one person. Now, write a detailed explanation to them about why you are pursuing the passion you are pursuing. 
justify your decisions. Try to convince them it is worth your time and effort and that you could be successful at it. Likely, you have been unconsciously rehearsing these justifications for a very long time. Get it all down on paper now. Then, when you are finished, fill a sink with water. Set the paper in it and let it soak into mush. In this way, let go of the urge to respond and retaliate. Then quietly, keep doing what you want to do. Don't let anyone's words or your defensiveness keep you from truly living what wants to be lived in you. So that is a very specific practice for this week. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I mean, I think about how this is specific, specifically played out in my own pursuit of my passion, you know, seven years of blogging. Um, I can't tell you how many uh, wasted hours I spent early on um, in either responding to nasty emails about what I'd written or it, crafting my responses in my head. I think there's been a progression from where I would actually respond to them and try to see, you're not really getting what I'm saying here, this is what I mean, um, to for a while I would, I'd spend a lot of time wrestling with what I want to say and then be like, no, I don't, I don't need to send this, to now um, not spending so much time doing that, um, to, to not, not even giving my time and energy too much to the naysayers. Okay, is there anything in this that's useful criticism? Okay, that is, I'll change that. Now the rest of it I need to let go of because we need all the energy and time we have to pour into practicing our passions, right? To, to climbing back up on that, that high dive. And if we're spending any of that time and energy um, sort of trying to convince the peanut gallery that they're wrong about us, um, then we are, are we're using valuable time and energy in a way that is not a good investment. So that's my that's my that's the practice for this week. It's my encouragement to you, is to identify one naysayer around you um, that maybe you're putting too much time and energy into trying to convince, um, and then um, do something very concrete, something very material to represent letting that argument go. Deb F. writes, I had to realize that sometimes people just aren't at a place to receive what you have to say. With regard to your blog post and tongue-in-cheek, she says, and my infinite wisdom, laugh out loud. Um, yeah, exactly. Like, the, the things that I have to say don't have to be for all people. Um, you know, that, um, that when I've discerned, when I've gone through a process of discernment and I feel like I have something that I want to offer the world... Um, that the people who resonate with it, they're, they're the people who are ready to receive it. And I don't, we don't need to go about trying to convince people who aren't ready to receive it that they should, um, or that, that there's not something, you know, that there's something, any defensiveness we need to have in terms of defending ourselves about that either. That's really important. A graceful way, Deb, to, to say that uh, we don't need to engage in that energy. Marie writes, I appreciate your perspective of the change over time and the defensiveness and need to respond. Such a good reminder of hope in the process leading upward. I like the statement that this is the way of heaven instead of the way to heaven. That boosts my courage. Um, yeah, I, you know, uh, Marie, for people of faith, particularly the Christian faith, I think one of the most compelling things that's said over and over, you know, in the Bible is that the, you know, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is is here. <laughs> and uh, if we don't let that shake us up a little bit, right? Um, then we, uh, we probably aren't listening. And, uh, and so for me, I think one of the, the revelations of this is that um, learning to, to, to faithfully engage in sacrifice, um, it's not the way to get somewhere good, um, that there's a goodness in it, in and of itself. 
um, that we discover is um, is a bit of is a sliver of heaven. So um, so yeah, I'm glad that that's helpful and um, certainly important to me. All right, everyone, thanks again for um, just another. We keep having these these last few weeks here are about bravery, are about courage, are about persisting, about being stubborn, and uh, there's the, the the conversations themselves have a quality of bravery and courage and stubbornness to them, which I am just so grateful for. So thank you. Uh, next week we're going to talk um, about the culmination of all this bravery. How does all the bravery that you've been practicing this year get transformed into joy? into joy. It will be week 51 of the year of listening, loving, and living, which is entitled How All This Passion, Pain, and Courage Add Up to Joy. Until then, remember, you are lovable. Thanks again for joining us on the Lovable Podcast. Remember, this companion book can stand on its own, but it stands a little taller and a little stronger on the shoulders of Lovable. So if you have not picked up a copy of Lovable yet, it is available wherever books are sold, and you can get it in paperback, digital, or audio format. If you'd like to simply download a sample of Lovable, you can go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com. In the right sidebar, sign up to receive my blog post by email, and you will immediately receive a free sample of Lovable and a free copy of my ebook, The Marriage Manifesto. The music for the Lovable podcast is courtesy of Ellie Holcomb and is entitled Wonderfully Made from her album Red Sea Road. Until next week, friends, remember, you are lovable.